Gaia Vince is an award-winning science journalist, broadcaster, and author who is especially interested in the interaction between humans and Earth's planetary systems. She writes for the BBC, The Guardian, Australian Geographic, and more, and held senior editorial positions at the science journal Nature, Nature Climate Change, and New Scientist. She's also the first woman to win the Royal Society Prize for Science Books and an honorary senior research fellow at UCL's Anthropocene Institute. Her latest book, Transcendence, explores the co-evolution of human biology, our environment, and our culture. Gaia Vince, welcome to One Planet Podcast and the Creative Process. Pleasure, pleasure to be here. You've selected a passage. I'll read a little bit from the beginning of Transcendence. I presume you are not hearing this while perched naked in a tree in the Congo jungle. You are, like me, wearing clothes processed from plants grown thousands of miles away, woven, dyed, cut and stitched by different hands, aided by several machines to somebody else's design somewhere else, shipped to another place, priced and marketed by other people, working to various orders and eventually several steps later of your own unique volition, wrapping your skin as wonderfully as fur. Perhaps you are sitting on a plastic chair formed out of the processed carcasses of long dead sea creatures held up by steel legs generated from mined rocks, blasted and refined and assembled in multiple steps by teams of people independently fashioning a structure that was devised and altered over millennia, millions of times. Wherever you are, you are generating in your mind these words that I have written as though I were speaking them privately into your ear. My mind is directly connecting with your mind now, even though I wrote this in another time and place, perhaps in another language. It is possible I'm no longer even alive. You are smart, but when alone, you are fairly powerless. We live our lives utterly dependent on countless strangers for our survival. Men and women have toiled to make and assemble the constituents of my lunch, clothes, furniture, house, roads, city, state and world beyond me. These many cooperating, collaborating strangers have themselves relied on thousands upon thousands of other people, living and dead, to shape the lives they lead. And yet, there is no contract, no plan, and no common purpose to our seven billion lives. If it seems incredible that everything we see now, all the busyness and industry of billions of people living seemingly autonomous yet utterly independent lives could have arisen without any plan. Then consider this, our superb working body from its eyes to its toenails to its consciously aware brain emerged similarly from a single cell in a matter of weeks. As a fertilized egg cell begins to grow and divide, one cell becomes a mass of pluripotent cells meaning they have the potential to be any type of cell in the body, depending on their biological developing bath. Thus, a cell that finds itself by chance on the outer part of the ball may end up developing into a nerve cell in the spinal cord. Another cell, depending on its developing bath, will become a heart cell. Evolution has created a mechanism whereby a functioning system of cooperating organs and cells, a human being, can be built from a single simple cell. We are each of us individuals with our own motivations and desires, yet much of our autonomy is an illusion. 
we are formed in a cultural developing bath that we will ourselves then fashion and maintain, a grand social project without direction or goal that has nevertheless produced the most successful species on earth. Humans now live longer and better than ever before. We are the most populous big animal on earth. Meanwhile, our closest living relatives, the now endangered chimpanzees, continue to live as they have for millions of years. We are not like the other animals, yet we evolve through the same process. What are we then? This question fascinated me and I set out to understand our exceptional nature, what alchemy created humanity, this planet altering force of nature out of an ape. And what follows is a remarkable evolution story that has captivated me utterly. It rests on a special relationship between the evolution of our genes, environment and culture, which I call our human evolutionary triad. This mutually reinforcing triad creates the extraordinary nature of us, a species with the ability to be not simply the objects of a transformative cosmos, but agents of our own transformation. We have diverged from the evolutionary path taken by all the other animals, and right now we are on the cusp of becoming something grander and more marvellous. As the environment that created us is transformed by us, we are beginning our greatest transcendence. Yes, I want to go back because you hinted at there how we transform our environments and your earlier book, Adventures in the Anthropocene, also dealt with this very exciting for listeners to go on those experiences with you. I'm just wondering, as you were traveled, you know, to places that are really truly wild, many of us don't have an experience of the wild, we want to save nature, uh, but we don't really have that experience. So I was wondering first, going back to that, um, you know, how did witnessing life in those regions where people are vulnerable to changes in the weather and not completely masters of their environment, what did you learn from that? How did that change your perception of the world? Anywhere there are humans, the question of what wild means is obviously up for debate because humans change their environment everywhere they go. But in parts of the world, people are much more vulnerable to climate change because they live much more on in a place where they are affected by it. They are living on the coasts as fisher people or they are living in the forests or they are dependent on their animals in a way that people in urban environments are not but there are certain parts of the world where people are much more affected by climate change than others and, and the equatorial regions are getting hit by the impacts in a much to a much greater extent but so are the arctic regions i've just actually come back from lapland very recently and talking to reindeer herders who are seeing their way of life really changed because the the change in the weather means that for example instead of snow falling as it predictably falls always during um, the autumn and winter season they're getting precipitation they're getting rain falling which then freezes and becomes ice and that means that the reindeer are unable to clear the snow because they can't clear ice to get to their food so they're starving and they're also having to go much much greater distances in order to get enough food they're having to migrate a lot further and that means the herders can't find them as easily to replenish them with bought food so reindeer normally eat um well they eat enormous range of grasses and 
leaves and other vegetation but their their main diet is actually lichen the sort of algae that grows on uh, trees and on the ground and they can't get that if there's ice on top we're all excited about some of these geoengineering solutions like how do we fix the problems that we created in the first place the other side of that is do we do it more organically let nature just rewild itself and heal itself and just kind of get out of the picture more what are your feelings about our role in being a positive force i think geoengineering is going to be um, entirely necessary because we have changed the planet's climate to an extent where it's actually threatening millions of people's lives and i don't see much much cause to hope that that's going to change anytime soon certainly not in time to save lots of people if you mean solar reflectivity for example i think that certainly we should be talking about that and some researchers should be investigating it a lot more than they have to date because i think we are going to have to rely on that to reduce the temperature if you're talking about nature again this this idea that there is a nature that doesn't involve humans is bizarre to me i think the passage that i read earlier explains a little bit about my thoughts on that in that we are nature we are you know we're an evolved part of that what's happened is that uh, we've become so successful that we're able to dominate the rest of the natural world and change it quite considerably we're changing it in ways that are threatening our own survival so we have to remedy that in some places if we're talking about restoration of biodiversity ecosystems can recover with minimal intervention or no intervention from us in other ways that's not true they will have to be helped for various reasons partly because we're changing the climate. We're also restricting habitat. We're changing water supplies and so on. So in order to get some sort of restoration of ecosystems, we, we are having to, to look at introducing species back to places where they once were or, or moving them to places where they are more likely to survive, all those sorts of things. So yeah, I don't think there's... I don't think there's any kind of ideal time of nature. I mean, what before humans existed 200,000 years ago or before the industrial revolution or before the last century when some of the worst biodiversity loss took place. We've always, as you say, been making an influence on our environment. Um, humans, humans are a species, part of our characteristic. Humans are a species that modifies their environment. That's part of what being a human is. There are no humans that don't modify their environment. What's happened recently is that we've do dominated the planet, the whole planetary system, and we're changing things quite dramatically there. But we've always altered ecosystems. That's that's what um, humans do. That's that's part of what it is to be a human. I think that if we can harness our intelligence that's been able to innovate in such ways, but be respectful, I think there is that question mark when some of our solutions have to be done on such scale. Yeah, I mean, that's true. Some societies have managed to create much more balanced ecosystems over time. You know, it takes time. They do that through very small populations and a lot of moving around, a lot of migration. There, if they don't do that, it's very hard to not put pressure on a certain ecosystem. And I don't think change is bad. I don't think ecosystem change is bad. I think what's happened now is that we've pushed, we've, we've pushed planetary systems to such an extent that we're actually threatening millions of lives because 
climate change is so extreme and and if you look at the trajectory that we're following it's going to be so bad that droughts extreme weather events you know terrible storms and flash floods just as we're having already we're already experiencing some of these are going to become so frequent and so devastating that people especially poor people in large parts of the world are just not going to have a chance and that's that's really inhumane and we need to do something about that and we are going to need to look at other food sources because the crops that we've developed over the last 10,000 years were developed in a Holocene environment which no longer exists. So this band of habitability that, that goes around the, the planet, which um, supports the majority of the world's population because that's where civilizations grew up because it's the best climate to grow crops and to survive has now shifted. So enormous, an enormous percentage of the world's population is now living in places that are too dangerous to live, where they're going to experience extreme heat, where they can't grow crops securely. And the solutions to that are to bring the temperature back down and to move people, right? So mass migration, because these, these are serious challenges that we're facing, which I don't think people have really understood and it, it's much more than going to net zero we, we actually need to reduce the temperature because we're already experiencing um you know terrible climatic conditions we need to reduce the temperatures down and that's uh, according to our current trajectory is not likely to happen for absolutely decades by which you know billions of people will be affected Despite the extremity of climate change, many people don't really feel the urgency of global warming. What do you think is the most effective way to get people to care and support sustainable practices or advocate for environmental justice? Most people I know do care. They they care a lot and they feel let down by, by politicians, by the leaders of big businesses, by the slowness of action. I don't know the way to make people care because that's to do with empathy. And if people don't have empathy, I don't I really know how to how to tap into that. The best thing that we can all do is vote. Use your vote for people, for, for groups, for, for political parties. Use your purchasing power vote for companies that take this seriously and make people aware. Write letters to your, your politician that's, that, that uh, represents you um, to make them aware that this is an important issue. Because we get, a, we get a small buzz every time there is a COP climate conference and then it shifts back down the radar of politicians a little bit. But it needs to be kept up there. And a lot of the progress that took place at the international meeting was off the back of young people like you coming together and demanding change from their government. People who care about their environment marching outside with slogans. It may feel like that doesn't make a difference, but it makes a huge difference. And in, inspirational people like Greta Thunberg, like these uh, climate activists from India to the United States, all coming together and demanding that politicians take this seriously has an effect. Over time, it has an effect. And I think largely the change, any change that we saw was not the result of politicians suddenly having this like strange epiphany in the night 
it's to do with listening to the people they represent, saying that this is important to them. I think we care a lot, but I think maybe it's like to continue caring when you feel that, you know, how do you bring your your hopes and ambitions into action and I guess influencing the government and also how do we prioritize certain changes we need to make what practical step voting is the most important thing you can do and keeping up pressure because these are big changes that that need to be made if you have parents who have pensions if you have your own pension think about where that money is invested because money is a big driver of change whether it's maintaining the status quo whether it's continuing investment in dirty industries fossil fuels or or unjust businesses or whether it's transforming and leading the decarbonized economy investing in uh, renewables or in novel food sources that sort of thing you can do something with your money. You can, you can check where that's invested. It's just sitting there. You may not have a pension, but your, your parents or older generation may have some money. And where that's invested drives change. And it sends a huge message to banks and they need to drive change as well. So, so that happens. It will happen. My name is Shannon Park, Associate Podcast Producer and Political Science Student at UCLA. This discussion highlights how climate action can be taken in different forms at the individual, state, and international level. At the individual level, some actions we can take involve changing our consumption habits, reducing plastic usage, recycling properly, utilizing public transportation, and as Guy Events points out, voting for politicians who will implement necessary environmental policies. Unfortunately, voting for the right politicians does not always lead to necessary policy changes. We have witnessed that recently in the UN Climate Change Conference, also known as COP26, which took place this fall. While COP26 had some successes, they were insufficient to reach the goal of limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. COP26 was successful in achieving pledges from over 100 nations to cut 30% of their emission of methane and pledges to halt and reverse deforestation by 2030, as well as promises of $130 trillion worth of assets to be used to achieve net zero emissions by 2050. However, the conference failed to make significant progress on the challenge with inadequate climate adaptation funding to aid developing countries from detrimental harms of climate change, and it failed to sign all coal-reliant countries to convert their energy sources from coal to clean energy by 2040. Let's hear what Gaia Vince has to say on this and alternative measures that should be made. We're not going to meet 1.5 if what was achieved at COP26 would reach 1.5, that would be great, but we're not going to. And also when we talk about keeping temperature rise below 1.5 by the end of the century, that really is by the end of the century. So in between, the temperature will rise beyond that. And then the idea is we bring it down and most of bringing it down relies on a lot of unproven technologies. So I'm not at all convinced that this will happen um, certainly not the way um, we're going about it at the moment we're very very far from keeping the planet the keeping the planet's habitants safe and 
what that means is we have to think about alternatives because because at the moment we're looking at millions if not billions of people living very unsafe lives in the coming decades and this is these are the people that you this, this is your generation we're talking about because the young people now your your generation and younger are the people that will be dealing with all of this catastrophic outcome in the coming decades. You know, my children will be in their 80s at the end of the century. What sort of world are they going to be living in? So, so the alternatives are we keep the temperature down using large-scale geoengineering technology. We, we manage and enable mass migration strategies, which at the moment no one's even talking about to move people from very, very dangerous zones to more habitable zones in the global. That means a huge system of city building. It means completely rethinking the way we talk about borders and immigration policy, you know, or we actually get real about mitigating climate change, which we're not doing at all. So these are the options. There are three options or everybody dies. <laughs> you know, there's, there's, you can't argue with the physics. That's the problem. Yeah, I mean, it's it requires a lot more, much more intelligent, um, you know, city planning, as you say, using AI for positive instead of sometimes it seems frivolous or purely, you know, capitalistic ends. You know, I, I would love to see AI really applied to this climate change issue. And it's going to be a huge strain, as I know that you've addressed on, oh gosh, just water scarcity and, and so many things. And just going back to transcendence, which gives us hope too, because it just shows how we are able to do so much. And one good thing about our imaginations it's gotten us into a lot of trouble but it also means that we can really imagine futures other than what's right in front of us I think that's what differentiates us from many animals so just going through the different aspects of our cognition that you addressed in transcendence fire language beauty and time you know what did you learn about that process and where did it make you hopeful you know in relation to climate change and our future the good thing about our species really is that we create our own environment. I mean, what we've been doing so far is creating an environment where we're much more successful. You know, we live a lot longer, we're much healthier than we have been in the past. There's many, many more of us. So we're very successful as a species. And that's been at the expense of other ecosystems. But what's happened is we are now dominating the planet to a dangerous degree, but we are also self-aware. We are capable of understanding that it's taking some time, but we do cooperate on a global scale to a certain extent as well, which means that we can envisage a way out of this. We do have options. You know, I mean, if, if a cat did this, if a chimpanzee managed to make this situation, they wouldn't have the options that we have because they wouldn't be able to cooperate, plan a different outcome, use technology to the extent that we can. So we can envisage different futures. We can cooperate and make a better outcome, a better Anthropocene. Whether or not we will do so in time is the question, but have, you know, we're already making enormous amount of change, you know, extraordinary amount of change that, that I wouldn't have predicted. I mean, if you look at the renewable rollout for example that's been unbelievably fast and it's extremely cheap now to 
to put up a solar farm. I wouldn't have predicted that five years ago. So we can make change very quickly if we shift this system. But the thing is, we operate in a human system. We operate in our environmental system like every other animal, but we also operate in a human system. And these systems are intertwined. So on my own, say, oh, climate change is terrible. Let's stop burning coal. I can't do that on my own. I can't make a single difference. You know, if I say that, it will not change the temperature of the planet. But as a cooperative system, we can decide that and we can flip from one type of system, a carbon-based system, to a decarbonized system. And we can do it relatively quick. And that's incredible. That is actually an incredible characteristic of our species. But the way that human system is, is embedded in the environmental system is something that most people have yet to realise. They don't really, really understand because it seems incredible that what we do in our, in our cities, in our, in our worlds, very, very far away from the Amazon rainforest or the snows and ice of the Arctic can really have any, any effect on this. And yet... We can change the circulation of entire oceans just through the way we behave. So it makes the problem very complex, but it also makes it eminently solvable. So it's, it's exciting. And so one thing that you identify there is that perhaps we could improve more our education systems at, at a very young age. You know, climate education is something, as you say, how, how we live and are able to survive on this planet, you know, it's something that's not really properly addressed in, in many countries. I think it's, you know, now becoming a little bit more of a, you know, obligation, but not for, not even credits to graduate, like on a high school level in most countries. So although I think in Italy, I don't know what it's like in England, their movements, right? So, you know, what was your climate education, your environmental education? How did, and also, you know, how did you get on this journey that you that you became excited about and you want to be you know advocate journalist yeah i think that's i think that's really important the way that people understand climate biodiversity water flows around the planet geology all of these things are very very separate and they're taught to us in very separate ways or not taught at all and that needs to be changed that needs to be joined up and it's quite interesting that a lot of indigenous cultures where they still practice indigenous education there isn't this huge separation between people and their environment that they, they are all seen as integrated and one of the part one of a part and the way that the climate works and the way that the seasons occur and the way that flowering occurs and insects come or go and different life forms live is all understood as part of an integrated system and I think what's happened is through specialization and increased, increased understanding of the science behind it, we've separated all of these practices in a way that they're not any more integrated in people's minds, whereas in reality, they are actually integrated. So people don't realize the effect. It's taken a very, very long time for people to understand that, for example, climate change affects water flows and so hydrologists who are studying one tiny bit of water don't study something a little bit upfield which completely which com completely affects their own field of study you know this understanding that everything is apart doesn't happen until quite often postgraduate level it needs to be 
it needs to be understood in primary school. We need to understand how humans are integrated into this planetary system and how all of these things affect each other. Yeah, I, I, I think that needs to be taught right from the beginning. And it, it doesn't need to be complicated. It is actually very intuitive. What happens is that we have this kind of innate understanding of that, and then it's taught out. We need to understand that when we eat certain foods, that affects an ecosystem, which affects climate, which affects pollution, which affects the air we breathe, the soils, all of these things are interconnected in a positive and a negative way. You know, if we increase the number of flowering plants in our hedgerows, we're, increase, we're, we're improving air pollution, we're improving pollination for other plants, we're, we're therefore increasing the number of insects, which then can increase the number of birds that can feed on them, which, you know, so, so it's, we have these systemic effects through our little everyday practices, and people don't understand that, that connectivity, the fact that it's all part of the system, and that is a huge, huge element missing from our education systems oh completely and people believe that if they don't feel they may have a natural attitude uh, towards stem that they can't really be part of the solution apart from their purchasing choices so it really becomes that you're just outsourcing it for other people saying that's their problem they can solve it and maybe i can make some ethical purchases. I think that, you know, in the last century, there were a lot more inventions where discoveries were made by people that were just like average citizens who are curious. And so I feel like going out into the field, bringing everyone who just wants to learn and is curious is how you can really tap into their intelligence and their imaginations. And so I'm wondering as a young girl, you know, what were some of those transformative experiences that made you feel really connected to nature? And it's a beautiful place that you want to preserve. Yeah, I, I think I've, I've always loved being out in nature, even in the city, you know, because I love cities too. We're, we're surrounded by nature. We're surrounded by different types of um, plants. They're different plants, perhaps, than growing in a forest or growing in grasslands. But noticing these things and noticing the intricate ways and behaviours of different animals, just, just lying in a, in a park on the grass, you know, with your head near the grass, just observing a beetle going about its work, just observing an ant. Um, or turning up and looking at birds flying together and wondering why they flock in that way and where they're going and why they're around today and they weren't around a month ago, you know, all these sorts of things. I've always been fascinated in how the world works and trying to interpret it and trying to understand it further. And my part in that, you know, what's, where do I fit in, in this, you know, this, this huge eons and eons of history that has gone before me gone before my species and how did it lead to me and where where is it going where are we going after this what's happening to this you know this story that that will continue long after me maybe long after my species you know um, where 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 are we in all of this and it, it adds a sort of sense of perspective but but it also makes you notice really the here and now the changes you know, since I was a little girl and the changes now that I have children, I, I wonder about the changes that they will experience when they're my age, because change always happens. But right now it's happening very, very fast. I really resonated with your your experience as a little girl, because as an environmentalist myself, I also 
have had that experience with nature. What do you think about obligations developed countries have in reducing climate change versus that of developing countries? Because there's always like conflict between them and that developed countries need to do more because they already had all that pollution. They made all that, whereas developing countries are just starting. Yeah, there's huge climate injustice. So at the moment, we are living in a 1.2 degree warmer world than pre-industrial times. So the carbon dioxide that's in the air right now that's caused that temperature rise was largely emitted by the, well, the ancestors of people living in developed countries. And as a result of them polluting, producing and polluting the atmosphere with that carbon dioxide, they now experience a much higher standard of living. Things are much easier. There is electricity everywhere. Healthcare is generally better. Now, right now, countries, the countries that are producing the most carbon dioxide are countries that are generally poorer. They are producing carbon dioxide, which will affect you in a couple of decades. So it's the future warming that you will experience is being produced right now by poorer countries. Now, in terms of climate justice, there is a huge inequality in terms of energy access. So energy is the most important resource that any life form has, but particularly for humans, because everything that drives our food, our um, standard of living, the clean, the cleanliness of our environment, all these things require energy. And in rich countries, we have excellent access to energy. We have too much energy. We, in poor countries, some people don't have energy at all. They don't have any electricity. They're still cutting down trees just to burn to cook and for light. There's terrible inequality of energy, and that's appalling. Everybody should have access to energy. At the same time, we don't want the temperature rise to go any further up. So, so what needs to happen is that countries that are rich need to pay for the transition to decarbonize countries that are poor. And that is a huge cost because it's much cheaper. So, so because the cost of renewables has come down so much, it's a cost about the same. If not, it might be slightly cheaper to put in a new wind farm or a solar farm than a new coal-fired plant. But generally what happens is that money can be much more easily met if it's a fossil fuel organization, because a company can come in and say, right, we will take these oil fields and put up a nice power station and not charge you very much for it. Whereas poor countries have to pay outright for solar farm and wind farm because there's not much incentive to invest from uh, rich corporations and this is a huge problem and the cost of those loans because they have to add you know to repay each each year is really high like the interest being charged so what needs to happen is that finance needs to come down it needs to be much cheaper and rich countries need to pay need to help pay for this transition because everybody needs access to energy it's absolutely should be a human right so there is huge injustice there's there are other things that rich countries should pay for as well including loss and damages caused by climate change some of the costs of adaptation i mean rich countries are also facing huge um 
problems with climate change. The United States was completely on fire along the West Coast, deluged with typhoons and flooding along the East Coast. For example, Germany was underwater for you know, with huge amounts of damage. So this is very expensive. Climate change is very expensive and it's going to become more and more expensive. But yeah, if we're talking about historical emissions, rich countries should help pay. But also if we're talking about who has the money, rich countries should pay. So that's my thoughts on that. Yes, it's complicated to to do, but I think that we're, we're moving there slowly. I guess in closing, you know, as we reflect on the future, you mentioned your children and the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation. What life lessons, what teachers have been important to, to making you the, the writer, editor, broadcaster um, you are today? And what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? Well, I love natural, natural history programs on television. So David Attenborough was a huge hero of mine when I was younger. I loved his documentaries. Life on Earth and some of the ones after that are really, really excellent. Yeah, I just think we need to cherish the world that we live in. We need to try and we need to try and remember that we can only get through this. We've only ever got through anything in our history as a cooperative force. We need to work together to change the world for all of our survival. It's not about, you know, looking for one hero that's going to do this or, you know, one rich person or anything like that. It's about coming together and doing the very many different tasks and big and small actions that make a difference. It's about, you know, realizing that we need to change everything systemically the way we do the way we do everything you know from the way that we eat to the way that we get our energy to the way that we travel around needs to change but not not in a way that is bad you know this this could be a much better and fairer world yes it it doesn't we have to work but what you also know is that we have great imagination intelligence uh, that we can see uh, our way through so thank you Gaia Vince for helping us understand the climate biodiversity and resource crises of the planet and the power of our individual and collaborative choices and how we might harness them to lead more sustainable lives we all live on one planet we call home thank you for your dedication to the environment and adding your voice to one planet podcast and the creative process thanks very much mia this interview was conducted by mia funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students the associate interviews producer on this podcast was shannon park digital media coordinator is phoebe browse theme music is written and performed by juan sanchez we hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.